Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, where we're still building our offices, and that's what the construction sound is in the background. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, where the only background sound is Nick Patry's very, very empty stomach, I'm Zach Jabal. <laughs> and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And yeah, so Zach... Nick, don't uh, laugh on Mike during the intro. Come on, man. Oh, my God. I didn't know you were going to bring that up on the show. Now I feel like I got to address it. I mean, this is not the What Did Nick Patry eat, Not Eat for Lunch podcast. Someday but... it will be. Someday you'll give me my own segment where I tell oh you about my, my breakfast. But uh, <laughs> I'll keep my mic off for this. Season 40, when we're when Adam and I can't even hear each other, that'll be it. Uh, anyhow, how are you doing, Adam? I'm good. I, you know, it's just, it's funny. So we moved into our new offices officially um, uh, this Monday and there's still stuff needing to be done, like ra- old radiators getting hooked up and stuff. So there's lots of construction noise in the background, which I thought would be done by the time we recorded today. Um, but it is not. So I'm in the back conference room with the door closed, hoping that no one can hear me all the way at the front of the office where the construction's happening. Um, but yeah, uh, besides that, I'm, I'm doing good. It's weird weather here, man. Like it's cold, then warm, then cold, then warm. I don't really know what's going on. How about you? Pretty good. You know, kind of got a, got, got, got used to writing 2020 when I, uh, write the date. Uh, it's starting to, starting to feel a little bit more natural to me now. Uh, are you a believer in this thing? People are saying that you're supposed to write 2020 and not just 20. No. I, people are saying that. Oh yeah, there's like it's all these like things. You know how everyone does like around when weird stuff happens. Like oh Y two K, watch out Y two K. But you know there's all like USA Today. You know Business Insider. I mean they're a real bastion of uh, credible news. But all these people are saying that like I guess if you if you write just twenty that it's easier to change the date and make it look like you might have written eighty or make it look like you might have written you know, 20, 28 or whatever to like change dates. I don't know why that people are all up in arms about it. So everyone's saying, if you write 2020, it's, it's easier. It's like harder to do. Look, listeners, if you're still writing checks, you got bigger problems. I agree. If you're writing checks in 2020, you got bigger problems. Like I'm Apple pay all the way, bro. Yeah. Like I just, that's just how I roll now. Double yeah. click on that Apple watch, whatever. <laughs> that's how I pay my shit. Just kidding. I still use a credit card. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't actually think that's true. Because I think both you and I, Adam, are kind of old-fashioned in our own ways. But I do not write checks if I can possibly avoid it. I have There are like three times a year when I have to write a check. And it is definitely like, where the fuck do I even have a check? I once had to actually go to the <laughs> bank to have them print me a check. And they looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, what's wrong with me? Do people still like write checks? And then what's I was like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. I got stuck. I got stuck. This is apparently me complaining about check writing. I got stuck in line behind someone at the grocery store the other day who, honest to God, went to write a check and then was like, conf- and like not someone, not what you picture. Like they were older, but not like to the point where I would have expected this. They then got confused about how, what the name of the grocery store was. And it was a whole debacle. And I just was like, man, this is why we got rid of this shit 10 years ago. Anyhow. <laughs> Speaking of the future, I guess, we have a topic that's future-related today. We do. So um, I think you know one of the fun things, obviously, everyone likes to do in the beginning of, of the new year uh, is predictions for what's going to happen this year. So um, you know, I thought we could talk through a few of them uh, today, just things we think uh, you know may happen this year. Um, obviously, like – and then maybe it could be fun towards the end of the year to see if any of it really did. But uh, you know – I, I thought that would be a, an interesting thing to do. And then I'd love if we could hear from some of the listeners. If you want to hit us up at podcast at finepair.com, 
and let us know what some of your predictions for this year might be in the world of drinks. Uh, you know, we could ex- we could expand this if you wanted to food and travel as well. I'm um, just really curious to hear sort of what everyone else thinks is going to happen this year um, and what or what, you know, people think that is going to happen that you don't think is going to happen is also always fun. Uh, so, Zach, I thought I'd let you kick it off. Um, what are some of the predictions you have for 2020? So I'm going to start with a prediction that I sort of made when we were doing our 2010s in in uh, hindsight podcast. And I think that I, I've just what I've been thinking about it even more in preparation for this episode, I, I'm, I'm convinced that this year um, will be a continuation of, of what's already been an emerging trend and we'll, we'll sort of see it grow even more, which is um, bitter being the, the sort of flavor, I don't know, whatever the taste, although I think that term is sort of uh, not super correct anymore. Uh, that is, that is becomes ascendant in the world of uh, drinks. And I think we're going to see it uh, with a, an embrace uh, you're seeing it in, in, with an embrace of bitter as a flavor in wine um, with uh, both red white even pink and orange wines uh, where, where bitter is a, a becoming a more and more acceptable sort of uh, descriptor and, and an important part of defining a lot of um, really interesting wines um, structurally and, and as they're sort of the defining the parameters of their taste I think you're going to see it even more strikingly though in cocktails I mean we we have seen it but I really think you're seeing um, the the bar community in general, really lean into bitter and, and in a whole host of ways. And I think not actually uh, specifically through bitters or through Amaro's where you've seen it in the last few years. I think you're going to see more and more people look to bring bitter uh, into drinks through bitter ingredients that are not uh, themselves alcoholic. So I think you're going to see a, an embrace of bitter um fruits and and like pith especially uh from citrus i think you're going to see a lot of emphasis on um even bitter like uh vegetables being a a key flavoring component and i think the reason for that is twofold one i think bitter is just a thing that people are becoming more and more comfortable with in this country that that you know bitter is sort of for most people the last of our tastes to develop you know we do not like generally do not like bitter things as kids and it's only as your taste buds develop and you get sort of less worried about uh you know being kind of put off by bitter things that that you um i come to i think in both of our cases for sure uh really enjoy some of that bitterness and I think you will see, uh, as that is becoming more a part of American cuisine um, in a, or, or food in this country in general, through a whole different range of cuisines and influences, I think you will continue to see that um, bleed more and more into, in particular, the cocktail space. But obviously, it's also hugely important in beer and has been for a long time. And obviously, uh, it is in, and is growing in importance in wine as well. That's a good one. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think bitter will continue to become a very, <clears throat> you know, big flavor, especially as we... Uh, Maybe that that desire for spice maybe gets replaced a little bit. Like we said, you know, we thought maybe mm-hmm. a spicy wine was next a few years ago, and definitely we're going more towards I think the bitter end of the spectrum, which is cool. Um, so I, I I like that one. So this this one I have um, is I can't take credit for. Um, I had a meeting right before this with a good friend of Vine Pear um, and the star of the show we do Sip Trip, Jeff Porter. Um, who, you know, has been really active as a, you know, wine professional for a really long time. And his prediction, which I think is really interesting, uh, if the tariffs do pass, unfortunately, is that we're going to see in 2020, the auction market go crazy. Um, and the reason yeah. for that is, and even starting now, so with the threat of the tariff, because you have a lot of people in the United States who have these super fine wines um, that already have them stateside, right? 
you have a demand for these wines still, especially among a certain group of drinkers um, and among a certain caliber of restaurant, right? And the only way for them to get these wines, if these tariffs pass, is going to be to buy them at auction um, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I think you'll see a lot of people start playing that market, which I don't think is an amazing thing in the world of wine. Um, but I think you're just going to see you know, prices of wine, going back to last week's podcast, not just get expensive in the world of you know the re the current release, but all of the previous vintages as well. As people just scramble to try to get as many of these wines as they can, as the prices in general rise, which is a bummer. I also think that it's an important thing to note, and you made a you made a good point about this, and it actually kind of ties into the my next prediction. So I'll, I'll sort of segue into it. But that that question that is existing right now, um, the the uncertainty about tariffs as we record this, at least, and the the huge stark difference that's going to exist between wine that's already in this country. Uh, it was that was been that that was imported or potentially will still be imported in the next few weeks, month, who knows how long before the tariffs theoretically take effect, and wine that is coming in would theoretically come in after that is going to be an incredible line of demarcation in the industry, um, and and hard to predict exactly how that line will be drawn. I think um, so. My prediction is actually has to do with rosé, and I think that one of the areas where the impact of tariffs should they come to pass will be felt most keenly is in rosé and the reason for that is kind of twofold the first is that you're already seeing and i'm already seeing importers and distributors dial back potential orders for rosé because this is a time of year early january february when they're making arrangements with producers in europe uh, france and other countries to purchase wine that the the rosé from 2019 is getting to the point now where it's going to be bottled soon, if it's not already being bottled in some cases, and is start he starting to head to the export market. You know, I start, see I start seeing 2019 uh, rosé, we normally expect to start seeing it ro rolling into Seattle in late February, uh, maybe even mid-February, depending on the wine. And I think you're going to see a lot of people put a significant... Um, amount of that rosé on hold. They're they're not going to buy it. They're not going to try and import it until there's more clarity about what's happening because rosé by and large is so price sensitive and so and just a, not a category that is going to be able to if, if any category of wine is going to be able to absorb a 100% tariff and I'm not sure any really will. It's definitely not something like rosé. So I think the things that my my sort of rosé trends which are I think going to be um, illustrative of a broader trend if it comes to pass. The first is decreased ordering. I think you're going to see more and more people talk about, well, actually, good rosé should be a year old. I think you're going to see a lot of people, for a variety of reasons, try and encourage people to drink 2018 rosés and continue to. I know in Seattle, we had a really slow year for rosé. It wasn't a very nice summer in a lot of ways, and, and rosé sales were down big time. So a lot of people in this area are holding on to rosé. Um, and I've encouraged distributors, like, don't do whatever, you know, often in this time of year, at this point, they would be trying whatever they can to liquidate their current inventory because they have a whole bunch rolling in of 2019 that they're trying to make room for in warehouses and stuff like that. I think you're going to see more people hang on to it. I think you're going to see restaurants and, and bars and, and everyone be more prudent about pushing to kind of move through the past vintage uh, and, and encouraging guests to appreciate it while it's here. And I think you're also going to see, and, and this is the part that I'm most curious about, and I would be curious if you've heard anything about this or if there's anything that's happening, I think you're going to also see potentially a huge spike in demand for um, rosé from South America, from Australia, from South Africa, potentially, places where that are not affected by the tariffs. And because they are uh, on, you know, six months ahead in terms of their harvest schedule, could actually theoretically get wine in the market during mid to late spring and into summer, as opposed to 
if you're a producer in the U.S. or um, or you know whatever in, in other parts of the New World that aren't affected by these tariffs, you really can't probably do anything at this point. You know, you're you're kind of already made your decisions. You made your decisions in you know August, September, October about what you were going to make with your wine, and it's pretty hard to suddenly go back into tanks. And I mean, unless you're going to try to make really crappy you know, really inexpensive, not very good rosé, you can't really do much at this point. So you're looking at a year lag time at a minimum, whereas South America and, and Australia could be reconfiguring now. I'm not sure. I've heard rumblings if that some people are looking at this, but but I don't know. Is that something you've heard anything about? I mean, I definitely think, you know, we, we've heard that people are thinking about how they can, from the other parts of the world, sort of reconfigure and take advantage. And I, and I do think that, you know, the draw of rosé will continue to be pretty big across the country. So I think you will just see if if the tariffs happen, a lot of, as you're saying, new world regions making more rosé. So yeah, I, I, I could see that prediction, you know, very easily coming true for sure. For sure. Um, which is, you know, also crazy. Um, so I, you know, another thing that I think we're going to see uh, a lot of in this coming year that we were talking about a lot here uh, as well in uh in the office is just like the the continued democratization of cocktail bars. So I'm um, I think you know more and more and more you're going to see um, you know cocktail bars that look much more like regular bars that just happen to have really great cocktail lists than bars that feel fancier because they are cocktail bars. And I think you're going to still see the same high prices for those cocktails. You may not see them at $20. And that might be when you then are, you know, really fancy, like the nomad or things like that. Um, but, you know, besides that, yeah, I think, I think that's where you're going to see it. Interesting. So, so when you talk about that democratization, are you talking about it just more from the vibe of the place? Because I think when we were talking about, you know, trends uh, in the 2010s, you talked about Dead Rabbit and sort of how it was this sort of maybe a model for what you're talking about. And, and so democratization more as just like a bar you can walk into and not feel like it's a cathedral of cocktails? Or or is there also something about kind of like democratization in terms of who those bars are for in a more general sense? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be in terms of just like how casual the place feels. So, I mean, as you guys can imagine, part of construction also means there's always internet issues. Uh, And so we had to cut uh, a regular recording uh, plan where I'm on a really beautiful mic in uh, pushing through the laptop. And I'm now talking to you for the rest of the podcast episode, Zach, on my phone, which uh, hopefully won't sound too terrible for everyone listening. Um, Hopefully we'll get this cleared up by next week when we record again. But um, yeah, so thanks everyone for understanding. And Zach, what, what else you got, man? Well, first, I want to make sure that you don't, in the process of recording this podcast, accidentally purchase something through Apple Pay. Um, but also, um, <laughs> I will. I think I think the the thing for me that I was thinking about as as far as predictions is that I think we are going to see a really fascinating thing happen with what's going on with um, spike seltzer, hard seltzer, whatever the fuck we're calling it these days. And I think it's it's this we're we're ab- obviously at this period of like a massive arms race. Um, And, you know, as we're recording this, you know, just the other day, Bud Light rolled out. It's like Bud Light seltzer ad campaign. But I, what I actually really wonder about is I wonder if, um, if they are going to, if Bud or, or one of the other 
major beer brands is going to play one of their ultimate trump cards in this whole thing, which is basically they control so many uh, tap lines in this country, uh, in bars, in places like airports and, uh, you know, stadiums and stuff like that. And to date, they've mostly been content to put canned product in those venues. I don't know that anyone makes a claim that seltzer tastes better on tap. I mean, fuck, I don't know, maybe. But like, I think, I mean, I think the the real question I have is like, to what, where does this end? Does it end? Is, are we doing this podcast a year from now? And we're saying the biggest drink in this country is hard seltzer. I mean, it's not, doesn't seem implausible to me. It just, it's sort of, I don't have a prediction exactly other than that. I, I don't see this slackening i I mean because now you've got these huge engines revved up yeah i mean i think basically you are i think more correct than people who are saying it's going to go away i i'm i'm more willing to bet on your prediction than the person's prediction who said this is a phase and basically you know we are all going to be like laughing at ourselves next summer that we drank hard seltzer in 2019 I actually think it's going to continue to boom. I don't think this is the same as hard soda. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what keeps happening when it comes to the world of hard seltzer. Um, you know, we see like lots of interest from a variety of different producers, including Bud. Um, I think your point about the fact that Bud can really push a lot of people out of the market is very true. Um, they very easily can do that. Uh, so they can take control of tap lines pretty fast. Um, I also have been seeing a lot more like hipster seltzer brands. So like one that I think is really crazy is this uh, one called like Willie's, uh, either Willie's Homebrew or Willie's something. It's a hard seltzer brand from Paul Tuckett, Rhode Island. Um, And it's like all natural with like cinnamon or turmeric and like, all the like all the cool kids I'm seeing. Like if you go to like bars in Williamsburg and shit, like that's what they're drinking. So like uh-huh. you're seeing it like expand into hipster circles um, and away from just white claw to like these other kind of like light but with like funkier flavor style seltzers. Um, and I just think it's gonna keep growing. Um, I don't. I don't. I really don't think it's gonna stop at all. Um, it may. You know, we may hit a plateau, but like think about how long it really took Rose's growth to slow down where it's still even growing today, but like it's not growing at the explosive rate it was growing. It took a few years. And I think that like seltzers on that same trajectory, especially as it continues to steal market share from the other drinks of summer, like, um, you know, Aperol spritzes and uh, sparkling wine and things like that. I I just, yeah, I think we're all going to, I think more, I think more people that you know will be drinking hard seltzer into this year and into the summer than did last year for sure including maybe you. Yeah, so I want to I want to make two points there. The first is I think what you said about the comparison to Rosé is a really excellent one because there were a few years in a row when a certain segment of the beverage population, you know, on sort of the the industri- industry side, the media side was like, oh, okay, is this the year that Rosé is over? And it's clear that that's a silly conversation to have now. You can We can talk about whether the growth would continue, whether it would, you know, at some point plateau. But the idea that, like, people would just suddenly stop drinking Rosé seems silly now. I mean, who knows what the, what 20 years from now will be like, but but for the foreseeable future, it's silly to think that rosé is going to go away. And I think we are rapidly approaching that point with Hart Seltzer. Now, yeah, this year will be kind of a, a, a in a lot of ways, a, a make it or break it year in terms of its permanence in the American drinking constellation. But I do also want to say it would be remiss of me not to go to our official uh, Hart Seltzer uh, correspondent, Nick Patry. Nick, what do you think? <laughs> 
I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's a great point. Like you guys talked about the import market, if they're getting hit, like rosé can be replaced by a hard seltzer for a lot of people and like without the sugar too, which I feel like is a big reason most people drink it and why me and 30 of my bros get in a you know school bus and go tubing. Well, that's why we bring the seltzer. Got to watch the waistline. <laughs> God. And even beyond the summer, I'll say like over New Year's, I went to a a couple parties and everyone was bringing White Claw. It, it, like everyone had seltzer with them. It wasn't just a summer thing. So I think you're right. It's here to stay. Even Red Hook Brewery here in Seattle has a hard seltzer that they're making on tap now. So it, it seems like it is, yeah, it's ramping up, if anything. Nick, when do you launch your hard seltzer brand? <laughs> um, uh, what do I call it? Willie's, what was the one? Willie's Super Drink? That's a pretty good one. I might. So, someone, someone, someone look it up who has it because near a computer if one of you guys are. I think it's called like Willie's. Homebrew or Willie's? Oh yeah, here Willie's Super Brew. Su- Willie's Super Brew. Yeah, I knew it was like something that sounded like a little crunchy. Like. Yeah, great can design too. I think maybe you could go with like Nikki's Nutritious Elixir or something. <laughs> like, Ooh, okay, we can, we can just we'll, we'll just brainstorm this on the podcast. I'm sure that's excellent content for everyone out there. All right, I will trademark that today. I gotta say that like the Super Brew is good. Yeah. Like it is, and I'm sure. I mean. It is funny that you bring this up, Nick. I mean, now it's like we're talking a lot about seltzer. I think it's one of the big predictions in this year um, is that, you know, around the holidays for me too, like I would go to bars and I saw tons of people drinking that as opposed to maybe drinking like a Guinness or something, you know, that they might have drunk because they thought, oh, it's winter. That's what I should have right now. They're all drinking seltzer. And you are right. Like there's this appeal of low calorie, no sugar. And, you know, I think think also to jump on this, another prediction that we've had is you're going to see a lot of people comparing their own products to seltzer, like a lot of traditional products. So I think we're going to see a lot more sparkling wine with fruit mm. added than can this summer. I think you're going to see a lot of that. So we're going to say like, and trying to say like, well, this is natural. So, yeah. you know, it's, this is, this is, you know, just fruit juice and sparkling water. You're going to see a lot of that. I think you're also going to see a lot of, a lot more like beers that are like this. So, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most well-known ones is the, um, six point jammer, but like they, and they were one of the first, but this idea of like, you know, just like seltzer, but made with beer. So, you know, fruit and beer style drinks that are low alk that, you know, maybe someone who wouldn't totally drink seltzer would still feel comfortable drinking because it's lower in alcohol and it's a little bit more refreshing. And so I think you see a lot of this in the industry, um, especially as we, as we start pushing more into the warmer months, as people all try to catch this trend and figure out like, what can they put in a can that will fly as fast as White Claw? Yeah, for sure. All right, I have one last prediction, um, and that is that I think the this is going to be the year, and I think it's a beverage industry thing, but I think it's also a broader kind of food and drink industry thing. And I think it's a year when we are going to be really confronted in a lot of cities with the realities of a massive labor crisis that's kind of percolating up through the industry as a whole. Um, and I don't want to get into too much of the details because I do think it's something that you and I are going to have to talk about in a more um, – in a, in a bigger sense uh, later on this year in the podcast. But, but I, what I will say is that I think we are, there are a lot of, of sort of restaurant and bar workforces throughout this country and in various parts of the country that are being, that are really kind of stretched to a breaking point. And that, that breaking point is part just about, you know, the cost of living in a lot of these cities and how difficult it is for the people who work in your bars and restaurants to then also commute to work um, and either, you know, either live nearby and not have a brutal commute or to live somewhere where they maybe can afford to live and and face, you know, a very long commute, often at very sort of unfortunate hours for public transit um, to get to and from work. 
and there there just are a lot of things that are putting stress on the industry and and there are things certainly beyond um labor issues but but that to me is is a very very salient one and and obviously a big part of our conversation more broadly in this country um this year as a as it is a presidential election year is uh, there was going to be a lot of conversation about what work in this country looks like and how we address it and how we think about it. And I think the the beverage and, and food industry, because they're so service oriented and the jobs are so uh, so rarely kind of um, white collar and so rarely salaried in, in most cases, is a is a very uh, important part of that and, and is in a lot of cases a leading indicator. And I just, I'm concerned, Adam. I, I mean, I wish I had a, a rosier picture to paint, but I, I think there's a lot of uh, people uh, on all sides of this issue who are really concerned about what 2020 will bring in that particular um, arena. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of issues with labor. It's, it can only potentially get worse, unfortunately. Um, and I think we will definitely see that uh, continue to manifest itself in 2020, especially in, in the cities like you're talking about, the cities where a majority of people living in them are making salaries that are boosted by tech. So your city, especially with Amazon, mm-hmm. um, you know, my city with lots of tech. I mean, I think there was an article today uh, in the Times <clears throat> that basically like, you know, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, you know, have as many employees here as they always said they were going to have. What, but, you know, before they started looking, you know, before they started saying that maybe they would have a second headquarters here, right? Like there's so many tech jobs in New York now that there was like a joke that we should be renaming New York as like some sort of, you know, skyscraper alley or something, right? Yeah. And all of these salaries with from big tech are going to continue to drive prices up for everybody else. I think, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's another prediction that I have for, for 2020 sort of to, to jump on this is I think we're going to continue to see the power of big tech and we're going to continue to see that for good when it comes to uh, things in the business and also for bad. Um, for bad and that, you know, right now in this tariff threat, we're basically potentially, you know, being, you know, the, the beverage industry is being used as a pawn uh, in support of big tech. Um, and then also in a positive and that, you know, tech, I do think you're going to see a lot more of these brands go very heavily direct to consumer in the next year. Um, you hear a lot of noise about that. Uh, you know, Josh was talking about that during our editorial meeting this, this week. Um, and that, you know, direct-to-consumer really is going to continue to play a huge role for a lot of these brands, especially American brands, um, you know, and I think especially these brands that have rabid followings. And you're going to see as, as newer brands start, that's going to be their first, their first sort of marketing goals. Like, how do I go DTC first and then normal distribution second, right? Because everyone's going to try to figure out, like, how can I, expect, you know, grab the most value? And if I can keep that value for myself and I can keep those customers and I can keep that data, then why wouldn't I? Um, and, you know, we're seeing that, especially with, like, sort of trendy uh, vermouth brands and, and spirits brands. I think you'll see that more with savvier wine brands mm-hmm. as they continue to grow. Sort of figure out how they also speak to the customer and don't just, you know, allow the shop to speak to the customer or the song to speak to the customer, but speak directly to the customer and then really own that relationship themselves. But I think it'll be really interesting in 2020. Cool. And yeah, I mean, that's what I got, man, uh, from from uh, from la- from a construction-filled office to <laughs> a laptop to a phone. You know, we, we we made this one happen. Yeah, it's definitely been a, more of an adventure than some of our podcasts, but at least we didn't have to both fly to Italy for this one. I know, seriously. Although I went or, or Charleston, that. yeah, because I, <laughs> I wouldn't mind it either. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man. So 
Um, and for everyone else, if you have a prediction for 2020 or you disagree with some of ours or you disagree with other predictions that you have heard, uh, hit us at podcast.vinepair.com. I want to hear what you think. Again, podcast.vinepair.com. And again, if you uh, find value in this podcast, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, even with all of its audio issues during this episode, uh, you know, please rate us, review us, drop us a line at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really help, helps everyone else out there discover this show. And we'll see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vine Pair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.